The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Church this morning. Uh, so those of you without children, just be aware of that, that there are little people among us who are not normally among us, and they might make extra noise. And parents, that's okay. You don't need to take your kids out to the lobby if they're getting fidgety. Uh, it, it shouldn't be too distracting for me. Um, but feel free to go out in the lobby if it's you know, getting really, really bad. Um, what, one of the things that you know, is true about life in the church and is true about especially volunteering in the church is you don't notice the work of volunteers until something goes wrong, right? I mean, you don't notice or think about the nursery workers until one of the numbers comes up here and a parent has to sneak out the back to go comfort a crying child. Or you don't notice the people who are doing the sound or the video until the wrong slide is up there or until I get up to start speaking and you can't hear me because my mic's not on. We don't notice things until they start to go wrong. Um, that, that's both an encouragement to our volunteers. Thank you for your excellent work uh, this past year and a plea for more because our volunteers are tired because they volunteer a lot. We have a lot of kids in this church that need a lot of people to look after them. So if you're looking for a way to serve, to connect to the church this year, let me encourage you to volunteer in one of uh, our several different ministries. A couple quick announcements. Um, obviously, we met at 10 o'clock this morning, uh, had a few wonderful folks show up at 9 o'clock, and I got to greet them and apologize and direct them to Atlanta Bread Company where they could go eat a breakfast sandwich and get a cup of coffee. Uh, next week, we're back to our, for lack of a better term, regularly scheduled programming. Uh, worship services at 9 and 1045 and at 9 o'clock, uh, down in Ilderton Hall, we have 360 seminars, and we have two new ones that start next week. The first is for the women's ministry. It's the Crossroads program that Andra Ostergaard has taught all fall, but we're doing it on Sunday morning now instead of Thursday for those of you who work, who may be homeschool, or for whatever other reason weren't able to make it. Sunday mornings in January and February at 9 o'clock in Milderton Hall, Andrew Ostergaard will be teaching the transformed curriculum. How has God transformed us? What work has he done in us? And how does that work itself out in our lives? So that's one of the offerings. The other is a class that I'll be teaching called Gospel Alone, and it's about the Reformation. 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the year that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. And while we know that fact about the Reformation... A lot of times we don't know many other details beyond that. We don't know what the church was like beforehand. We don't know the major players in the Reformation. We don't know what was at stake. And this class is going to explore that. So it'll be a mix of doctrine, of biography, of church history. Hopefully there's a little something for everyone in there. And that also will be at 9 o'clock down in Elderton Hall. So we hope you'll join us for one of those this year. Now as we turn our attention to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to the letter to the Colossians chapter 1. What do you want this year? How do you want to change? How do you want to be different? What are your resolutions? I mean, you knew this was coming, right? It's New Year's Day. I'm preaching a sermon. We're going to talk about resolutions, right? So let's get it out of the way. What do you want this year? A flatter stomach? Me too. To worry less? Yeah, me too. To read more? Yes, me too. Maybe you've resolved to be more patient, or to eat healthier, or, or actually tell the people in your life that you love and care about that you love and care about them. These are all good things. These are great things to resolve to do in 2017, ways to change and to be different. But is this as good as we can do? 
We can't hope for anything better than pants that fit a little better and you know, deeper sleep at night because we're less stressed. I hope that we can desire more. This time of year, as I'm thinking about resolutions and goals and hearing other people's resolutions and goals, I'm often reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's printed for you in the, the cover of your bulletin. This is from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We, we want the wrong things, or we want the right things, but not strongly enough. And this year, I want to encourage and challenge us to pursue more, to pray this year for more than just a flatter stomach and more free time. And to do that, I want to look at Paul's letter to the Colossians. He, he starts off the letter, he's never met this church, but he starts off the letter talking about how thankful he is for their existence, how he rejoices when he hears about them, about their love for the saints, about their love for the gospel, about their faithfulness. And then he starts to pray for us, and this is what we'll look at this morning, starting in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae this morning, I pray that you would help, it, help us to make it our own. Help us to desire these kinds of things, in addition to all the other good things that we want this year. Help us to desire this kind of fullness that Paul talks about. As we explore this passage this morning, Father, I pray that you would meet with us, show us yourself, teach us from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul has one main point in his sermon here, one, or in his prayer here, one key petition, and it's that they be filled. He says it clearly in verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled. And then he explains more about that, and that's what we're going to look at briefly this morning, just these three aspects of this prayer for filling. Filling with what, filling for what, and what that filling looks like as we live our lives. Filled with what, filled for what, and fill what that filling looks like in our lives. First, what we're filled with. This is verse 9 again. He prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God's will. We all want to know this, right? We desperately want to know what is God's will for my life. It's one of the key questions that comes up over and over in our lives, maybe day to day, maybe just at those big decision moments in our lives, but, but how many of us haven't asked the question, what's God's will for my life in this situation? In high school, we ask, where should I go to college? 
In college, we ask, where should I live? What should I study? What should I major in? Who should I date? After college, where should I live? Who should I marry? What job should I take? If you get married, should we have kids? When should we have kids? How many kids should we have? If you have kids, public school or private school or homeschool? How many kids? Where should we live? What kind of neighborhood? What hobbies do we want our kids to have? Where should they go to college? And after they go to college, what do we do? What's God's will for my life? This question never stops for us. And it's a good question to ask. It's a good desire to have. It comes from a motivation that wants to please the Lord. We want to be in God's will because we love God and we want to honor him and we want to live well. But sometimes this question comes from a place of fear. You know, there are a lot of options available to us and we don't want to step outside of God's will because what's he going to do? To, is he going to punish us or are things not going to go as well for me or for my family if I'm outside of God's will? We want to be in God's will oftentimes because we think in that, lay, in that way lies peace and prosperity and ease and blessing. We forget that sometimes God sanctifies us through difficulty and through hardship, and it might be his will for us to suffer a little bit that we might grow to depend on him. So we do whatever we can to discern God's will because we so desperately want to know it, right? We look for open doors, ways that God seems to have made available for us to go. But this isn't a perfect test, right? Because maybe a closed door is God calling us to be more persistent, to persevere, to endure in the pursuit of something good. We, we follow the probably bad example of Gideon, who fleeced God. You know, God had told him, hey, you're going to go out and battle against these people. And Gideon wanted to make doubly sure, so he set this fleece outside and said, make it wet on the fleece and nowhere else. And then he reversed it the next night. And, and we try and do the same thing, don't we? God, it seems like you're leading me here, but I want to be sure. So will you do this or not do this for me? Or we try and discern God's will by the random versing use of the Bible, right? This is the man who woke up and said, what's God's will for me today? Picked up his Bible, flipped through the pages, and blindly pointed to a verse and landed on Matthew 27, 5. Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> he said, that, that's probably not God's will for me today. Let me try again. And he flips through the Bible, points again, and he ends up on Luke 10, 37. You go and do likewise. It's ridiculous, right? But who of us haven't done this? I mean, I've done this before. I've got a question. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. So you pick up the Bible, close your eyes, and, oh, okay, that kind of seems to relate, and so I'm going to go do this. We try all these things to discern God's will for our life because we so desperately want to know. But Paul here tells us what it looks like to know the will of God. It looks like all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we go, eh. That's a little bit of a letdown, right? I mean, we want answers. Am I supposed to get married to Susie or Becky? Should I take that job? Should I go on this mission trip? Where should I go to school? God, I want answers. We at least want a method. Pray this many times, roll the umim and thumim, and then you'll have your answer. But what Paul gives us is different, and it corrects our misunderstanding about the will of God. See, we picture the will of God as some plan that he has for our lives, some series of events and decisions and experiences that we need to walk through, that we need to be in step with, or else we'll be out of favor with God. There's, there's a series of events, there's a story that we're supposed to inhabit, and that's God's will for our life. Paul corrects that misunderstanding, and, and I'm going to overstate it here uh, in hopes that you'll actually hear me. 
it doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter where you live, what you major in, where you work, or even who you marry. God cares about the kind of person you are as you live and as you study and as you work and as you are married. You see, we ask all those questions, and they're important questions, but they're not the most important questions because God's will for our life is spiritual. We're obsessed with the circumstantial, with the who and where and what, and God's asking about us, about our hearts. Rather than ask God, what job should I take? We should pray that he would help us to take a job that will honor him. That's his will. So if you're considering a career switch, Yes, ask about the compensation package and whether or not you'll have to relocate and the hours and all that, but discerning God's will for your work means asking questions like, will this job require me to violate God's law? Will this job enable me to provide for my family? If not, it's not God's will for you. Will this job require relocation to somewhere without a Bible-believing church in which I can grow and serve and worship? If it will, it's not God's will for you. It doesn't matter if you work for Hardgray or for Time Warner Cable. It doesn't matter if you go to Clemson or to South Carolina. It doesn't matter if you live in Hilton Head or Bluffton. God is concerned with your heart, with your sanctification. God's will is for your sanctification and that you glorify Him, that you love Him and others. God's will is for us to live in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how do we get this? If this is what it means to to live in God's will and it's available to us, how do we get it? What what means does God use to fill us with spiritual wisdom and understanding? First, he uses his word. We seek guidance from God in all sorts of ways and and open doors and fleecings and feelings because we don't believe at bottom that he really has provided everything we need in his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Scripture is all you need to be fully equipped to live life well in this world. In Micah 6.8, the prophet says, He has told you what is good. Love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with your God. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the church, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. So do you want to know God's will for your life this year? Read the word. Second, God gives us spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowledge of his will through prayer. We pray for illumination as we read the word. We pray that the spirit would help us to understand and apply what we're reading. But we also pray for wisdom. James says as much and as plain as you can. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So do you want to know the will of God for your life this year? Pray. And finally, God gives us the spiritual wisdom and understanding from one another. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. God has redeemed many of us and filled filled us all with his spirit that we might speak wisdom and truth to one another. So parents, instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. Children of all ages, ask your parents for advice. They've lived longer than you. They probably know more than you do. Ask them. 
There's a, a short little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, and it's all about this question of the will of God and, and how to discern it. And, and as he's talking about these things and he's talking about the role of community in discerning God's will, he says this, we spend all this time asking God, what's your will? When he's probably thinking, make a friend, would you? Go talk to someone. There's a reason I've redeemed a lot of you, because you do fewer dumb things when you talk to each other. Get some advice. You might just hear my voice. Paul prays that the believers in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that comes to us through the word, through prayer, and through one another. But he doesn't just pray that they be filled for the sake of being filled. There's a purpose to it. Look at verse 10. Paul says what we're filled for. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. When we're filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we are able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Does this sound like a tall order? Does this even sound possible? Some of us are so racked with guilt over our past that we can't imagine being pleasing to the Lord. We can't imagine God looking at us and actually smiling and being pleased. Tolerate us, maybe, but being pleased with us, you don't know what I've done. Some of us feel like we're continually disappointing to other human beings on this earth, whether it's a spouse or a friend or an employer. And if we're disappointing to humans, how much more must we be disappointing to God? Or maybe our theology contributes to this sounding impossible, to this sounding like a tall order. You know, we're really good on total depravity, and we're really good on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's good and right. The Bible teaches those things, and we're right to hold on to them. But we forget that having been redeemed, having been brought into the family of God, we are able to please our Heavenly Father. Remember when we were in the book of Romans and we were working through chapters 5 through 8, one of the key themes that Paul deals with is adoption. That we've not just been forgiven, we've been made sons. That God has brought us into his family. And, And imagine a human adoption. A child does nothing to merit their adoption. All they do is get born, and they don't even have control over that. And a parent, a new parent, sees a child and is moved by love and adopts them into their family And that child, it would be crazy to think that they're incapable of pleasing their earthly fathers. It would be crazy to think that they're incapable of living worthy of their new name. They are. And that's the hope of every father who adopts a child. It's no different with our Heavenly Father. He has brought us in to His family. And we really are able to please Him. This is what we're made for. We are made to glorify God. Paul says in Romans 12, from him and through him and to him are all things, and that includes you and me. So does this sound impossible? It's not. You really are able to please God. Or does it sound unnecessary to you, maybe? Some of us live in the how could I ever please God camp. Others of us live in the I don't need to please God camp. And in a sense, that's true. We're invited to salvation. We're invited into God's family, not based on anything that we've done. We're invited to buy without price, to drink of the living water. If we try and clean ourselves up, if we try and be pleasing to God before we come, we're actually getting it backwards, right? If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 
I'm saved and loved and accepted as I am, we joyfully exclaim. But then many of us make a misstep. So why do I need to change? If I'm already accepted, why do I need to be different at all? But look at the title that Paul gives here. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When the Bible talks about God and talks about Christ as Lord, it talks about his power. He created us. It talks about his provision. He cares for us. It talks about his presence. He is with us. It means that he's the king and we are not. We are to glorify God because he made us and takes care of us, because he redeemed us and he rules us. It really is possible for us to be pleasing to God, and it really is necessary for the believer to pursue pleasing God. And if this is our goal, to live a life pleasing to God, it'll change everything that we do. It'll change the questions that we ask about what we do. How will I work in a way pleasing to him? How will I speak with others in a way that honors God? How will I interact with my friends and my neighbors? What will I read, watch, pursue? And if we're filled with the knowledge of his will, as Paul prays in verse 9, then we'll actually be able to answer these questions and live a life pleasing to God. D.A. Carson, commenting on this passage, talks about the relationship between those two things, the what we're filled with and what we're filled for. He says we cannot begin to be pleasing to Jesus unless God fills us with the knowledge of his will. And the knowledge of his will is not an end in itself, but has as its goal such Christian maturity that our deepest desire is to please the Lord Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossians, for people who are already believers. He says, may you be filled with this knowledge and so live a life pleasing to the Lord. Don't try and live a life pleasing to the Lord without being filled by God. And don't let being filled by the knowledge of God make you think you have a pass then on living a life pleasing to the Lord. We're called to both. And thankfully, Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like in the Christian life. What does it look like to live a life pleasing to the Lord? This is our third point this morning. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Paul gives us the answer. He says, it looks like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks to the Father. Paul gives us here four characteristics of what it looks like for us to live lives pleasing to the Lord. They're not the only characteristics of the Christian life, but they are indicative for us of a life pleasing to God. First, Christians please God by bearing fruit. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In John 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This bearing fruit is the joyful pursuit of every Christian. It's not a justifying pursuit. Remember, this is written to Christians who have already been redeemed, who have already been filled with the Spirit, who have already been filled with the knowledge of God's will. And being filled with those things, we desire to bear fruit in good works. We desire to honor God in the way that we live, in the things that he has prepared for us that we should walk in them. Christians, please God by bearing fruit. Second, Christians please God by increasing in knowledge about him. The Bible tells us we're to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. We're to be ready to explain the gospel to the curious, 
to defend the gospel against the antagonistic. We're to know more about Christ that we might love him more and serve him more joyfully. And that again drives us to learn more about him. There's a cycle in this passage. In verse 9, Paul prays that we would be filled with knowledge. And in the first half of verse 10, that leads to obedience. And part of that obedience is pursuit of more knowledge. That our obedience might be well informed, which drives us to seek more knowledge, which drives us to more obedience, and on and on and on. Christians, out of obedience to God, learn more about him. Third, Christians please God by enduring. Paul prays that they would be strengthened for endurance and patience with joy. And this is where I get frustrated with Paul. Because I want everything else in this passage. I want to bear fruit. I want to be filled with the knowledge of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want to know his will. I even want patience. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He says, endurance and patience with joy. That's annoying. I'll be patient all day, but don't ask me to be happy about it. I, I love to be a martyr about how patient and, and how patient I'm being. And if you only knew how hard it was for me to be this patient, you'd have pity on me. But Paul says patience with joy. And that's one of those reminders that we get in Scripture, that the Christian life is not lived on our strength. Because you cannot have patience with joy on your own strength. This, this, in the list of things that it looks like to be a Christian, is the passive one. We're to actively bear fruit. We're to actively pursue knowledge of God. But here, we receive strengthening. And the strength that we receive, this glorious might that Paul talks about, elsewhere is used of the resurrection power. It's the power of God that gave Christ the endurance to stay on the cross in behalf of you and me. It's the power of God that raised him from the dead, and it's given to us to preserve us, to sanctify us, to sustain us, to persevere. So whatever you're facing this year, especially in those things in which you need endurance and patience, don't try and do it on your own strength. Don't try and white-knuckle it or bear through on your own steam. You don't have enough. Instead, pray that God would strengthen you with his glorious might. Christians please God by enduring. And finally, Christians please God by being thankful. Thankfulness is not a natural condition for us, is it? Entitlement speaks more to the condition of my heart than thankfulness does. You know, I, I, I deserve this. I'm owed this. I've worked hard, therefore give me this. It's the way we interact with other people, and it's often unfortunately, the way we interact with God. But Paul here commands thankfulness, which sounds strange to us because we think of thankfulness as a response. It's not something that we can choose to do. It's just we, we at some point realize that we don't deserve this, and all of a sudden we're thankful for a little bit, and then we go back to our, our selfish demands. But Paul commands thankfulness. And it's a blessing for us that he, that he does because if we're seeking to be thankful... We will actively look for ways that God has blessed us. And you don't have to look very hard. It's not hard to see ways that God has provided for you, has cared for you. Being thankful forces us to slow down, to observe. Being thankful puts us back in a right frame of reference to God. He's the giver. We joyfully receive. Christians please God by giving thanks. So Paul has given us this picture 
of what it looks like, what he hopes for the Colossian church, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to live lives pleasing to him, characterized by bearing fruit, by learning more about God, by being strengthened by him, and by being thankful. And it's a beautiful picture for us, but thankfully and brilliantly, Paul does something else with that picture. He doesn't just set up this picture of this is what it looks like to be a Christian and say, now go for it. He picks up that picture and he sets it in a story. Listen to verses 13 and 14. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This Advent, we went through the big story of Scripture. We spent a week each on creation and creation lost, and new cre- recreation and the new creation, that story of, of creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And we did that for a reason, because the story that you're in, the story that you see yourself as part of, impacts the way you live your life. And so is your story about you? That's going to impact the way you live your life and the way you impact others. Is your story about God and his work? That's going to impact your life. That's going to impact the way you interact with others. Stories get inside us and and change us and and affect us in ways that the, the headlines and the snippets and the quotes that we see so often just don't. A funny example of this was during our Christmas vacation, me and my family, uh, we went to the mountains of North Carolina, rented a big cabin, and we spent several days up there. It's always fun when we do that uh, because Sophie gets to spend time with Nana and Pop-Pop, and her uncles shower her with gifts, and you know, we, I try and pack everything into the car on the way home, and we get a break because everybody wants to play with Sophie, and so me and Trish finally get some time to relax and take a nap and read, and Trish was doing that one day. She was sitting in a chair in the living room reading a book. Um, and, and the rest of us were in the room trying to figure out what to do next. Do we want to play a game? Do we want to watch some football? What, what do we want to do? And every once in a while, we'd, we'd get loud because we'd be laughing at some inside joke or something like that. And Trish would look up from her book and kind of glare at the room and then go back in. And, and the cycle would repeat itself two or three times. And, you know, I, I, I'm aware of Trish and, and how she is. And she's my wife. I, I notice her. And so eventually, after the, a couple iterations of this, like, are, is everything okay? Like, are you all right? He said, I'm just at a really important point in this book, and the characters are going through emotional trauma, and I'm going through emotional trauma, and none of you care about it. <laughs> she was reading Pollyanna, and I have no idea what the story is, but apparently if you want some good emotional trauma, pick up Pollyanna for a read. But the story got inside of her and impacted the way she viewed the world because she was affected by the story. And that's what Paul does with us here. He gives us this picture of a believer, totally devoted to God, desiring to please him. And to make sure we have the right context for it, he picks it up and he puts it inside the story of what God has already done. He has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the domain and rule of the devil, and brought us into the kingdom of his son. He has forgiven our sins. He has redeemed us. And this gives us great motivation to pursue that picture of the Christian life. He's done all this for me. What can I do in response? It gives us hope and confidence that it's actually possible. Because if he's taken us out of the clutches of the devil and brought us into his own family, 
If he already did the hard work of adopting me and forgiving my sins, of course he's able to fill me with the knowledge of his will and strengthen me for endurance and patience with joy. It gives us trust in him. If God did not spare his own son for us, we can trust that his will for us is good. So what do you want this year? I hope that you've been inspired by Paul and challenged by Paul and that you want more than a flatter belly and less debt and less stress and more whatever else. I hope that you've caught Paul's vision here. I hope that you pray to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that being filled with it, you strive to live a life pleasing to God, relying on his strength. Let's resolve to do that this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are are challenged and convicted by your word. Father, at the same time, we're inspired by your word to see this picture of the Christian life that you have made possible by your son. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue this picture this year. Help us to long for more. Father, help us to pursue the knowledge of your will and spiritual wisdom and understanding that, that impacts the way we live that impacts the things that we seek, the way we interact with you, with others. Father, we pray that you would do all this in us, not for our sake, but for your glory. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.